One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. Before we get started, I just want to let you know about my Patreon site, which helps support this podcast. Every week I post a new video, which is filmed here at my home in Stirling, in this office here. Uh, the site also has competitions on it now. The one running at the moment is a bit of a virtual treasure hunt, and three winners will receive a personalised copy of my new book, The Story of the World in 100 Moments. And as well as weekly videos and competitions, there's also a whole archive of films to watch. Packed, full of history, comment and current affairs. The sort of stuff that keeps me sane, or possibly keeps me insane, who could say. Anyway, to get your hands on all of this, go to patreon.com and search for Neil Oliver. And I will look forward to seeing you there. Right, that's the Patreon advert done for another week. Here comes the latest podcast. Cue the music. Even now, even in our modern 21st century world, those that go out are risking their lives. And the lessons of the sea, the lessons of the sea are still being taught and still being learned. In this episode, we're casting our nets with an ancient industry. A natural and bountiful resource vital for the British archipelago. But the perilous coasts of these isles have always clouded fishing in heartache and tears. A dangerously inadequate harbour, a hated tax, draining resources, and a community under pressure to feed their families. Setting sail with bad weather looming. Sweeping across the North Sea, a hurricane hit, pounding boats into matchwood. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we shed a tear as we caught sight of the last part of Ireland... Many saw as they fled the horror of the great hunger. Where are we this week? We are still on stormy waters, Paul. Right on the other side of the British archipelago, on the eastern seaboard of the Long Island, is a proud, hard-working fishing port. Battling the elements, bureaucracy and the church, the families in this tight-knit community found themselves caught up in a deadly storm that wreaked havoc. We're in Berwickshire, in the fishing village of Eyemouth. 
Berwickshire's lovely. I know people hear me say that all sorts of places are lovely, but Eyemouth and, and the county of Berwickshire, it's, it's very pretty, especially on the coast. It's a lovely bit of landscape, very atmospheric. Eyemouth is a fishing port. There are still a few fishing boats, fishing vessels that go out from there into the North Sea and, and take their chances to bring back a catch. But back in the 1800s, it was a very significant fishing port. Very valuable catches of herring and haddock were coming in at Eyemouth. I suppose it's one of those, I think when people think about the fishing industry in, in Scotland, if they think about it at all, they probably think more about places like Fraserburgh, maybe Bucky. There are other ports whose names maybe resonate a bit louder in the modern day. But there's no getting away from the fact that in the in the middle years of the 19th century, Eyemouth was a hugely significant port. And, you know, we have a funny relationship, I think, with our fishing industry here in, in the UK for lots of reasons. The people who live and make their living on the coast, on the sea, it's a world unto itself. When I did the television series Coast, you very much got the sense that people living on the coast anywhere around the whole 12,000 miles of coastline of the UK, they have more in common with each other than they have with any community living inland. It's a world. That, that ribbon of, of coastal communities is, is unto itself, such that, say, a community living in the northeast of Scotland, in a fishing port, they have, they have much more in common with fisherfolk in a port in Cornwall than, than either of those communities would have with, a, with people maybe just 20 miles away inland. Because the, the experience of living and being at the mercy of the sea is quite different and it unifies and makes us a single population of the people that do it. You know, those that go down to the sea in small boats and conduct their business in deep waters, these have seen the works of the Lord, you know. There is, a, there is, there is something about the people because they've been toughened. They've been toughened in certain ways because the sea has always demanded sacrifice. You know, it's not for nothing that we have the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, you know, the RNLI, the, the volunteers that go out and save lives all the time, in all weathers, volunteers, unpaid, because the sea extracts a terrible price. Even now, in the modern world of GPS and, and all the tech, if a storm comes, it's still capable of outright destruction, and lives are always being lost, and fishing boats are still lost to this day. And there's a terrible, long, heartbroken legacy in the fishing communities. And here in Britain, we've always depended on the sea. It's probably largely forgotten now, but the British fishing grounds were so, are so rich. It's an absolute treasure. And it was always people from around Europe have always wanted in amongst the the British waters because they were so rich in fish. And when back in the in the 1970s, when we were finally granted membership of the common market, which was the precursor of the European Union, it was a Tory government at the time and Edward Heath, Ted Heath was Prime Minister and, and he decided that the price worth paying was to give up the British fishing grounds. That was the price that was paid, and, and you know, and, and from that time on, France and Spain and, and anyone else was 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 entitled to fish in British waters. 
that's what we had to put on the table to get into the common market. And of course, it's it's back again now because even right now, this minute, in post-Brexit world, France is very unhappy about the number of licences granted to French boats to, to come and fish in British waters, which is to say they want a whole lot more of their ships to be licensed to fish in British waters. And so it's all it's all going on. But it's, it's just testament to, to the fact that it, it's still... The, the fishing waters around the British coast are still, you know, you're regarded as, as some of the most fantastically valuable on, on the planet. Everyone wants in amongst it. The fleets were completely decimated after that 1973 agreement to join the common market. And there then began a process by which the vast majority of the British fleet was just done away with, scrapped, because there wasn't enough fish to go around and the number of British vessels was, was severely curtailed. And so when you go to somewhere like Eyemouth, like as is when you go to so many of the other fishing towns, fishing ports around the coastline, they're shadows of their former selves. So in the 1800s, would Eyemouth and all the other similar coastal fishing ports like it have been really busy and profitable? Absolutely, absolutely. But it always came at a terrible price. Life in Eyemouth was, was different for some very specific reasons. A rich port, though it was, with the fishing fleet coming back in regularly, laden with, with haddock and herring for trade into Europe and, and, and around. The fleet, the, the fisher folk, were bedeviled by an ancient relationship that existed between themselves and the church. It had always been the case that the fishermen would pay a tithe, which is to say a tenth. It had always been the norm all around Scotland to pay a tenth of income to the kirk. Just, that was just the way it was. You paid a tenth of, your, of what you earned to the church. And the church, you know, was then wealthy and had money with which to do things. By the middle of the 19th century, though, the practice had largely died out. It was no longer the case that people were operating that way. But in Eyemouth, it prevailed. In 1843, there was an, an event, a seismic event called the Great Disruption, when hundreds of ministers uh, broke away from the established Church of Scotland. And they did that because there was mounting anger at the closeness between church and state. A lot of ministers decided that the Church of Scotland was too close to the state. It wasn't being independent and it wasn't acting only in the interests of parishioners and congregations. They didn't like the, the lockstep relationship between church and state. And so hundreds of ministers broke away and established what became known as the Free Church of Scotland. And so in the fishing ports, many of the fishing communities, as elsewhere around Scotland, they broke away and followed the rebel preachers. So they left the Church of Scotland behind and went with their own rebellious ministers and became part of the Free Church of Scotland. And that increased the extent to which, in most places, that handing over of a tenth of income phased out. It just stopped, but it just didn't stop in Eyemouth. In Eyemouth, 
uniquely that church there retained its grasp. It retained its position of control and it was continuing to exact what was a, a punishing tax. I mean, having to hand over a tenth uh, was very difficult. And finally in Eyemouth, there was a, a local man, a fisherman, a, a local hero called William Spears, and he led a peaceful rebellion. He said, enough's enough. And it culminated in the ending of the paying. It was, it was called the Tend in Eyemouth, but it was the 10th. The William Spears earned the nickname of the Kingfisher. But although there was this determination to break away from the tax, it didn't end the ill feeling. And Eyemouth remained a sort of simmering hotbed of ill feeling between the church and the local people. There was a constant struggling and wrestling for power. The Great Disruption was 1843, but the trouble in Eyemouth, the ill feeling rumbled on for another 30 years until eventually the Lord Advocate had to intervene and he brokered a compromise. And it was at that point that the church formally accepted that it was giving up its claim on the tax. But what it demanded in return was an annual payment of compensation from the town. So it wasn't taking a tenth of everyone's income, but it wanted a, a lump sum of money. Because it was still able to make the argument that the church needed to be funded somehow. And so that was the, the agreement that was reached. But what it, all of that, all of that, you don't need to get too bogged down in the detail of that fight between the population, the congregation and the church and the Church of Scotland and the Free Church and all the rest of it. Suffice to say, because Eyemouth had been such a sort of troubled hotbed, it had been neglected by the wider community, by the rest of the country. It was sort of overlooked. And so there had been less attention paid to the fabric of Eyemouth than had been paid to the fabric of other towns. It, it all got lost in this ongoing battle about money being paid to the church. And one consequence of it all, which was crucial, was the harbour, which was the safe place for the fishing fleet, was in a bad way. It had been neglected for decades and it was inadequate. The positioning of Eyemouth, the position of the harbour, meant that the harbour wall, such as it was, offered scant protection anyway. It was a dangerous port, even for, even for a seasoned fishing fleet. It was a, a dangerous place. And where elsewhere in the country, government investment had, had seen large-scale improvements to, to seawalls and other parts of the fabric of fishing towns, troubled and troublesome Eyemouth had just been overlooked and avoided. They just kept on, oh, we're not even going to get involved there because they just fight there. They're, they're involved in this constant, ongoing battle. Let's just leave it and concentrate on other places. And so it, what had happened, basically, was that the, the fishing fleet in Eyemouth, the men of the fleet, had just become accustomed to taking terrible risks. They got used to danger. And quite often, they would have to deal with conditions and, and go out in, in, in circumstances against their better judgement, but it was either that or not make a living. Finally, there came a fateful October 1881, and the old salts, the you know the experienced fishermen, in the days running up to that, that October week in 1881, they knew there was a storm coming. You know, they had looked at the skies and they could, you know, experience told them that there was something heavy coming their way. Their feeling was that they should wait out but some of the younger men, some of the younger fishermen wanted to go out, take the chance. And of course, they had grown up in this kind of risk-taking environment in Eyemouth. 
where you just you just went out and got on with it. And finally, one ship cast off its ropes and headed out. And the tradition, not just in Eyemouth, but amongst fishing fleets generally, was that if one ship went, they all went. It's a kind of a mark of honour. So that if, if one sort of cracked and headed out, they would all, oh, right, let's go. And sure enough, the whole fleet went out. And so they were out in deep water. They were out far out at sea when no, nothing less than a hurricane hit. And at that point, the fleet turned for home. But it was, it was too late. They were in the very worst of circumstances. A lot of the ships made it back to, they could see Eyemouth. They were there, they were in the vicinity of the entrance to the harbour. But even in fair weather, it was a difficult turn against the tide to get in from the open sea and into the harbour. It was tricky anyway, but in the teeth of a hurricane, it was impossible. And the awful tragedy was that the, the families of the fishermen, knowing that the fleet was in trouble, had gathered on the sea wall. They were down watching for the fleet coming in. And one after another, they watched one ship after another being overturned by the swell or being smashed against the rocks. There was a particularly dangerous set of rocks just at the harbour mouth uh, called the Hurker Rocks. And one after another, within reach of safety, but in these terrible circumstances, they watched one ship after another being overturned or smashed. By day's end, when it all became calm again, by the, by the end of the 14th of October, a total of 19 ships were gone. In all, 189 fishermen lost their lives. 189. 129 from Eyemouth itself. You know, the other 60 were from neighbouring locations, uh, but all but all working out of the Eyemouth Harbour. But 129 men were lost from Eyemouth itself, which meant that by the end of that day, there were a, a hundred widows and 300 fatherless children on account of what had happened. Utterly shattering, you know. I mean, these were the, the, these were families that they depended upon the men. It was the men that went out and earned the money. And so all at once, there were 100 widows and 300 fatherless children. One ship, a single ship, a couple of days after the hurricane blew itself out, a ship called the Aerial Gazelle limped into the harbour. The skipper, wisely, rather than running for home, he had a hove too out in the middle of the open ocean in deep water. He just pulled his sails in and rowed out. And he was right. And when they turned up at Eyemouth, the sails were all torn and, the, and a lot of the timbers were smashed, but the entire crew was safe. So one crew out of the Eyemouth fleet managed to make it home to safety. Was that because he knew how dangerous it would be to get back into the harbour? You'd call it the right stuff, I suppose. He alone made the right decision in the circumstances for, for his ship. You know, he called it right. Maybe, maybe the decision wouldn't have worked out for others, but it worked out for him and for his crew. Yeah, and, and there was a, a terrible irony that the long overdue improvements, the attention that, that had for so long been needed to be paid to the harbour wall and the rest of the fabric of the of the harbour. The plans had just days before had circulated around the town. 
they were just about to, to get down to making the improvements that might have made a difference, but who knows? Have you had any first-hand experience of trawler fishing? More times than I can count, really. I've been out on, on, uh, on fishing boats in the North Sea. You know, I've slept on trawlers out of various ports, and it's quite a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's 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 li- you know, even in weather that, that fishermen regard as pretty fair. It's lively. It's li- it's lively aboard a trawler because everything's moving in three dimensions the whole time. It's scary. It's a scary place, especially on deck when they're all working with nets and there's ropes moving and there's winches winding in ropes and everything's moving and there's trip hazards and th- there's spinning metal that you know that could pull you in and you could you know you could get caught in a net and you know and pulled over the side with the, with the machinery that's. There's a thousand ways to die on a fishing boat. It's a properly terrifying environment for the uninitiated. Uh, but I went out, I went out on a boat from Eyemouth, and uh, and the amazing thing is that everyone in Eyemouth to this day, certainly all the fishing, all, all the fisher folk, all the fishermen, they all know the story. That disaster of of October 1881 is remembered as um, Black Friday. And there's a statue in, in Eyemouth to William Spears, the Kingfisher, who fought back against the, the church and, and secured the, f- the fisherman's freedom, if you like, from the hated 10% tax. But most movingly of all, out on the harbour wall, there's a really affecting sculpture. It depicts several, I think there's maybe three or four, fisherwives with blankets or, or whatever over their heads. Their faces are just twisted in horror, they're all wailing uh, because it depicts them looking out to sea and witnessing the loss of the fleet. It's a very, very affecting artwork and it, and it recalls the helplessness of the, of the population of, of Eyemouth watching as its, as its benfolk were, were harvested. All in all, every fishing port you go to around the, the UK has a tale or tales of tragedy. You know, you go and you buy your fish in the supermarket or in a or in a fishmonger's, and too few of us give any thought to the danger that's involved. You know, the life and death struggle that it always was, and that to take advantage of the richness of the of the fishing grounds. You know, the sea gods have extracted a terrible sacrifice, a terrible blood price from the populations, and you won't go to anywhere, be it a, be it a picturesque holiday port in Cornwall or anywhere else. If you spend any time and start talking to people or looking at plaques and looking at some of the artwork, you'll, you'll hear stories of loss. It just so happens that the story of loss at Eyemouth in regard to Black Friday in October 1881 is particularly dark. But all of it is just a reminder that even now, even in our modern 21st century world, those that go out and catch fish are risking their lives. And the lessons of the sea, the lessons of the sea are still being taught and still being learned. The coast has always been a rich source of food for these isles. I remember being with you on an island in the Firth of Forth. Inchkeith. Yeah. Yeah. When you found a Neolithic oyster midden. Yeah. There used to be fantastically rich oyster beds. And they were, they were incredibly cheap, such that the poor people, if they could afford nothing else, they could afford oysters and claret. Claret was, 
claret was cheap red wine. <laughs> and so if if they were right down on their uppers, if they had if they could afford nothing else, they could they could eat oysters and drink claret. And of course now oysters are, are something that you know that m- most people regard as just a luxury item, and, and most people turn up their noses at the very thought, uh, even if they're offered them. We've got a funny relationship. We've got a funny. We we in, in Scotland certainly have a, have a strangely um, reduced and impoverished relationship with the fishing grounds, the the British fishing waters. But yes, the 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 fishing grounds, the the British fishing waters are an extraordinary bounty and they have been praised as a source of wealth since time immemorial. And it, it's very much the topic of the moment because post-Brexit, obviously there's, there's now going to be a different a different relationship between the rest of Europe and our fishing grounds and we, we, we obviously await with bated breath to see how that plays out. Because even after all this time, even with the depletion of the fish stocks and all the rest of it, everyone knows that if you can get in amongst these waters... There's money to be made. When you meet fisher folk, no matter where they're from, they all seem to have a similar humour and shared experience, yeah. don't they? Yeah, it, it, yeah, and they, you know, they've, and they all, all they're quite often small places. You know, they don't have large populations, and so many of them have lost people. You'll see in the news about a, you know, a fishing boat. Will, will be lost you know it's so dangerous you know when they're out and the weather turns on them and they've maybe got their nets are maybe full of fish you know that that enormous weight that's pulling on the boat and if they make a mistake or if the, or if the weather turns even now with the benefit of modern technology it's such a dangerous profession and they know every everyone that says goodbye to a fisherman that, that goes out for days or, or weeks every community still knows that there's a chance that some or all of them won't come home. You admire them, don't you? I do, I do. They're, because I've been out, because I've seen what it is that they do, it's so hard, I mean, physically. But everything about it, you know, being balanced, being able to work on a platform that's rising and falling and moving through three dimensions. I mean, just standing upright. And they can't hold on to things because they're working with their hands. Uh, everything around them is dangerous. The, 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 the machinery that's, that's uh, deploying and pulling back the nets, or if they're working with um, creels, you know, if they're, you know, those creels that go down there, you know, they bring them up, you know, catching crabs and catching langoustine and, and, and lobster and such like. Everything about it is dangerous. When the nets are going out, you know, the, if you get caught in the net, you, off you go. Oof, away you go. You go out, you go out with it. You turn your back on it for a second and your, your foot gets tangled up in it and boof, you're in the water. They're up at all hours of the day and night. You'll be sleeping in a, a bunk, and in, in the dark, in the dark in the middle of the night, they're, they're getting up, and you have to get up. Oh God, right? And you know, you you get your gear on and your waterproof trousers and your wellies and whatever, and you stumble out onto the deck in the middle of the night, dark, cold, raining, and away they go, and they're, you know they're chatting to one another and laughing, and yeah, it's they're great. Yes, I do. I, if you earn your living that way, by God, you deserve your pay at the end of the week. Woo. Separated by the Strega slide 8,000 years ago. Set apart and made different. From the first farmers, everyone coming to the British archipelago had to be determined and committed 
to prosper, these islands have had to develop a mastery of the sea. For thousands of years, this was the end of the line. Dreams to reconnect the two landmasses were hatched. In 1880, engineering pioneers set to work, tunnelling through chalk to undo what nature herself had done. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.